IDC Podcast would like to thank our listeners and supporters at buymeacoffee.com forward slash idpodcast for making today's show possible. Please be sure to subscribe, rate our show with your podcast provider of choice, and as always, share with others as that's how we grow. Also, be sure to check out episode 137 for the complete Pillars of Intelligent Design audiobook at no cost to our listeners. Welcome to the Intelligent Design Collective, your number one source for in-depth study and a fierce defense of the Christian gospel. My name is Aleko. For those of you who are new, we here at the IDC podcast believe that the author of life has left his signature woven into the grand design of the material cosmos, and that observable data vindicates belief in the God of the Bible, as you can find evidence of intelligent design everywhere, from the galaxies and star systems in the macrocosm to the hyper-complexity of life, as well as the incredible curiosities found in the collection of books we know glibly as the Bible. So we're glad that you could join us, as we've got a lot of great information coming your way in the new year. The podcast is now released on the 21st of every month. Our show has never been about high-volume and low-quality content. We want every episode to be on par with an abridged layman's research paper with a lot of information and very little superfluous narrative. So let's get into some updates and then discuss the show notes. The Ancient Greek Study membership tier is back. If you head over to buymeacoffee.com forward slash ID podcast, you'll be able to download our monthly Ancient Greek Study in audio format, which is geared toward scripture learning. I've modeled it after Earworms and Pimsleur Language Learning, two programs which helped me tremendously while trying to learn Mandarin and Japanese living over in Asia over the course of a decade. So please head over to buymeacoffee.com forward slash ID podcast and give it a listen, as I think you'll find it edifying. So here's a breakdown of the things that we're going to talk about in this episode. As a reminder, you can head to the show notes in the podcast description and find the timecodes if you'd just like to skip to a specific place. First off, we have a new Twitter handle. It's at IDC Podcast. I should clarify, it's not a new handle in the sense that we had an old one. This is just a a brand new Twitter. As I've said before, I'm not a huge fan of the platform. There's a lot of, frankly, disgusting things on there. Uh, But it allows me to keep my finger on the pulse of trending anti and pro arguments in the apologetics community. Uh, So there's a lot of interesting things there as well to to glean. You can head over and follow or not follow if you want to see some really interesting arguments coming from other major apologists, but I completely understand if you don't because of just how crazy that platform is. So at the start of the show, I'm going to briefly touch on my thoughts on the new Jesus Revolution movie. I I definitely had some, some things I liked and definitely some things I didn't like. After that, Michael and I discuss some of the incredible unknown truths and events surrounding the resurrection of the Christ as well as the crucifixion in historical documents. Things ranging from accounts of darkness that came during the time of the crucifixion in China to omens of impending doom surrounding the Jerusalem temple after the crucifixion of the Christ. After that, the book continues their journey into Edward Fazer's last superstition, so far, I, I think it's it's one of the best books we've read, and Edward Fazer has not disappointed. So, without any further delay, let's get started. 
Alright, I'd like to get into my thoughts on the Jesus Revolution movie. I'll make this as quick as possible. For those of you who have not seen the movie or are curious, I'll just give you a little synopsis. Kelsey Grammer stars in this latest fact-inspired entry from the Irwin Brothers. As Chuck Smith, an evangelical pastor in Orange County, California in the late 60s and early 70s. Smith is introduced to Lonnie Frisbee, who is played by Jonathan Rumi, who also plays Jesus in The Chosen. Lonnie Frisbee is a charismatic hippie preacher. Frisbee transforms Smith's ministry, which opens its doors to the disaffected young people who became the core of the Jesus movement of the late 60s and early 70s. The the participants were often called Jesus people or Jesus freaks. Joel Courtney stars as the young Greg Laurie, who's drawn into Smith and Frisbee's orbit and has a religious awakening. Laurie became a pastor and wrote the 2018 book Jesus Revolution, How God Transformed an Unlikely Generation, and How He Can Do It Again Today, on which the film is based. So, my thoughts on the movie. To start with, I had heard stories of Lonnie Frisbee going back years ago, and it's very obvious that at some point he was indwelt by the Holy Spirit, as he did perform gifts of the Spirit. So, out of pure curiosity, I decided to bring my wife out and watch this movie, because I wanted to know a little bit more. Because I used to be a teacher trainer, I will grade this movie with the same means that I used to grade some of my teachers. Two kicks and two kisses. Well, actually, when I used to grade teachers, it was two kisses and one kick, but I've got two and two for, for this particular movie, and I feel like that's fair. So I'll start with the kisses. One, everyone is welcome into Chuck Smith's church in the story. I think this is fantastic, and I completely agree. Christ welcomed everyone, and unfortunately, a lot of churches today still carry out types of segregation based on appearances. And I don't believe so much this has to do with skin color or race as much as it has to do with financial standing, or rather the clothes that you wear. I encountered it just recently, going back to a Greek Orthodox church in the Twin Cities. We happen to be dressed a little more casual than we should have. I I, I frankly wasn't I wasn't overtly, you know, casual. I was wearing a, you know, pair of black pants and a black polo and a jacket. It was a windbreaker, but I wasn't dressed to the nines. And I I did notice people giving me looks. I didn't say anything about it, but my wife gestured over to some of the people giving me looks and felt uncomfortable herself. So appearances can still be a thing when going into institutional churches, and that is unfortunate. The second thing I like, or the second kiss that I'm going to give to the movie, is embracing the gifts of the Spirit, which is on display in the movie. One of the events that led to my conversion was witnessing healing in the name of Christ. I have seen it many times before and seen prayers answered in real time. Our belief is dynamic and not stagnant wishful thinking. A lot of institutional churches fall into this because it is, a, I would say, a type of comfort zone, and I disagree with that. I could expand much further as this is a topic that I could go on into for days, but I would definitely recommend Craig Keener's Miracles if you would like to read more on at least one of the gifts of the Spirit done in an amazing form. All right, uh, let's get on to my kicks. These are some things that I think the movie could have worked on. The movie really endorses the idea of consecrating and promoting new converts to the role of teacher. In the scripture, we see the roles of deacon, priest, and bishop. In, in the Acts of the Apostles, it's deacon, elder, and overseer. But if you want to get down to the nitty-gritty, uh, elder comes from the Greek presbyteros, 
or which translates to the English presbyter, or rather priest, and overseer is the Greek episkopos, which translates to the Latin bishop. So we see these three offices, deacon, priest, and bishop, laid out, and certain guidelines given for all of them, which are also bolstered by the early church fathers, the the people who directly were taught by the disciples. St. Paul emphasizes the notion of promoting experienced folk to the role of the overseer in Acts 28. And the early church fathers like Bede express the extreme responsibility that comes with some of these offices and how they should not be taken lightly. Many of the controversies that I have seen in the inst- in institutional Christianity have come from converts who were consecrated to a leadership role far too early. Um, and, and this is even put on display in the movie when Lonnie Frisbee falls prey to his own arrogance and loses sight of reality because of the love of his own voice. Now, the movie doesn't seem to understand this concept. It just seems that it treats Lonnie as kind of a um, maybe a, an, an outlier because at the very end of the movie, it really endorses the notion of Greg Laurie being promoted very early on in, in his um, convert status. And of course, we know that that wound up all right, but there are many instances where this type of consecration or promotion does not end up all right. And all types of... Um, heresies and controversies take place because of it. In fact, I believe that new converts promoted to a teaching role have led to the deconstructionism that we see today in the church and the massive falling away of of so many, and even the movement of many people in non-denominational churches back to more conservative churches where perhaps you wouldn't see that type of early promotion. Uh, that I know of, there's a huge movement back to Catholicism and Orthodoxy because of how highly revered the offices of deacon, priest, and bishop are are held in these these two institutions. Now, I'm not saying I I can I agree with that. I, I think that you know that, that's a that's a whole other topic altogether. But what I am saying is I feel that the movie glamorizes some unbiblical things that would lead to further issues within the church, in my opinion. The reality is that while the church is dynamic and alive and full of the spirit, organization is still put in place for a reason, so that heresy doesn't set in and that the enemy can't make his way in to allow for half-truths to take place. One could make the case that many of the major heresies that have taken place in the U.S. might have found their roots in the Jesus People movement, Quite literally, it seems to me, the enemy, you know, choking the seeds that were planted uh, because there was no scaffolding to hold them in place. The second kick goes to the storytelling, as I feel it it washes over Lonnie Frisbee's story in a major way and doesn't highlight just how flighty some of the people surrounding the movement were. I read, I mean, it's, it's common knowledge that, that Frisbee, you know, died of AIDS and had a, you know, relapse. He fell back into the bondage of, of drugs and you know in in some places it's implied that he fell into homosexual relationship although that's not really proven some people make that inference because of the whole aids thing but that could very well have been from sharing needles or or using drugs improperly in my opinion but either way he fell back into bondage and the movie really glosses that out in a big way i also read a number of stories online where people who were actually in the movement testified to interesting things happen and positive things happen as well as a wave of folks attempting to fake the gifts of the spirit because they wanted to quote have superpowers like jesus while not actually caring for the truth of the gospel you know a lot of a lot of that 
a lot of the hippie movement was about awakening and and a lot of it really when you get down to it was about self-indulgence and people were exploiting this movement in order to in order to self-aggrandize and that's definitely not a good thing so overall i enjoyed the movie um those are my two kicks and my two kisses i wouldn't be very fast to recommend it um but that doesn't mean i i I disliked it either I, i probably you know fell middle of the road um it 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 does highlight some very core key truths to our belief and and sweeps some major things under the rug in effort to keep a sheen on the movie that might not have been the reality of the situation. All right. Uh, <clears throat> hey, Michael, uh, do you want to begin with an opening prayer? Okay. Sure. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for um, gathering two or more before you. And we know that in Christ's name, if we gather that you're among us and connect us because we're part of your body. And we pray that you would guide us in conversation, that we would go in directions that you ordain and speak words that glorify you and speaking about holy things about the, the wonders of your resurrection and we just pray that you would uh, your life and your victory would be expressed through what we say and we um we just pray this would glorify you by your holy spirit and we thank you for everything we thank you for the hope you've given to all mankind because of your resurrection and it's in your name we pray amen so it's especially important that we started with an opening prayer this is the second attempt at our discussion of the resurrection um, I, I don't know how many times Michael has done recording before, but I, I've done it a few times, I guess. And yeah, I don't think I've ever encountered so many issues in all of my time recording. So we, we, we attempted, we had a couple of, we had like, I don't know what, a half an hour of, of, uh, discussion, um, and just technical problems galore. And Yeah. If you are if you are the yeah. type to believe in such a thing, it, it's almost as if there was some type of malevolent power that were attempting to stymie the whole process. <laughs> so it just so happens that I do believe in that sort of thing. So, um, and I believe Michael does as well. <clears throat> yeah, definitely. <laughs> All right. Uh, so yeah, I, we're we're coming together to discuss the resurrection of the Christ. The Easter season or, or Passover season is coming upon us, and this is a really important holiday or it's the most important holiday in my opinion to all believers it's um the in my in my opinion as of right now the focal point of all of history it's you know the thing that we we rest our hope on and yeah i'm just keen to get together and um talk about it with michael and maybe learn you know, more about your thoughts on it and then maybe go into some interesting some interesting tidbits about about Passover slash Easter. Um, I, I say Passover slash Easter because Passover is obviously the holiday that you know the the Jews celebrate, and it's 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 more or less what is celebrated worldwide. Like in in Orthodoxy, Greek Orthodoxy, we were raised with Pascha, right? It was called Pascha, which is the Greek translation of Passover. Uh, so Easter is more, I guess, what you call it, like an Anglified or maybe transmogrified word it's it's um 
you know, obviously it's, it has some, some dealings with the edict of Milan and, you know, some pagan, pagan stuff, but most Christians, you know, at least attempt to make it about the resurrection of Christ, in my opinion. But we, we will, you know, refer to it as Passover or Pascha from time to time. So we hope that doesn't, we don't, that doesn't throw anybody. Um, but, you know, Michael, I've known you. Oh, sorry, go on. Yeah. No, I, no, no. no, no, no I was going to say, um, just... I, I, I was going to get into how I, I, we've known each other for 20 years as of this year. Uh, and and I, I still don't know a lot about your Passover traditions. But but please, what, what were we going to say? I was going to say, you know, we, we correspond Passover or Easter, but really we're celebrating first fruits, you know, when it comes down to it. So it's um it's kind of an interesting combination because there's a lot of similarities between Passover and, um, you know, Easter. But ultimately, you know, Passover is celebrating the day that Christ was crucified, which we're not obviously celebrating. We're actually celebrating first fruits. That's a really so, good point. Yeah, um, good point. The other thing, just a throwaway, and it just popped in my head. Um, it's kind of interesting that Christians don't celebrate Pentecost because, um, you know, that was kind of the, the birth of the church. Um, and I, maybe there's some believers that do, but I've never come across any. I don't know of you. I don't know that I haven't seen Pentecost. It's a pretty big thing in because I was raised in the Greek Orthodox Church. Pentecost is a huge thing in the Greek Orthodox Church. Surely oh, okay. it's mentioned in and the thing is I, I I haven't attended other services religiously enough, yes, pun intended, to know whether or not <laughs> they do Pentecost. But I, I do recall it going on at the <laughs> Anglican slash Lutheran service that we used to do in Vietnam. I think it was going on. I don't recall. Huh. So you were, yeah, I could be wrong. I mean, I grew up. No, Sorry, you were in churches where they weren't doing Pentecost. No, I've only I grew up in a Hebrew roots church, and then I've barely been to church since I've been a grown up. So, uh, but the only church I went to of any regularity, which was like probably less than a year, I don't recall. So that would only would have been one year I was there, and I don't recall them doing anything to do with Pentecost. But maybe they did. I could just be uh, mistaken. I guess with Pentecost, you know, unless you, I don't, I can't even remember the Jewish traditions behind Pentecost. So when you say Pentecost, you don't automatically think of a certain meal or a certain, you know, to me anyway, there's not, there's not obvious things that go along with it in your mind to, well, to my mind. Um, but, uh, but either way, you know, Passover, Pentecost and Tabernacles are like the three main feasts. And obviously the first two have been fulfilled. There's seven overall, but those are the three times that everyone had to appear before God in Jerusalem. Um, and those are like the three big, big kind of building block fulfillments. Sure. Um, yeah. Even though all seven, all seven are going to be fulfilled. So, um, yeah, Pentecost, definitely a big deal. And then Pentecost was also when the law was given, um, you know. We did a discussion uh, of feasts, I think, two years ago, was it, in Vietnam? That was yeah. absolutely fascinating. Uh, just you know, talking about the feasts um, and the you know, their the prophecy behind them. Anyway, I'm not trying to guess. No, 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 no. I, it's yeah, I, mean, I like it's, it. Uh, I like it. That, that's great. I like going off on the tangents, and, and and in fact, a lot of it just kind of slipped my mind because I crammed for the test, so to speak, and then I only have fleeting memory of of what we discussed. Um, but I really enjoyed the conversation. So if you want to get into that as well, yeah. I think it's really interesting. And, and yeah, good point about the actual crucifixion being Passover, you know, the, essentially the blood that saved us, right? 
and then yeah. and first fruits is is what the resurrection is what we're actually celebrating so that's a fantastic point yeah and i've had it turned around in my mind a lot too i always equate easter to passover oh you know they're always at the same time and it's easy to forget that really as believers we're celebrating first yeah. fruits but, wow yeah it's um, a good point and it, it allows me to be the more pretentious person at a party now so when you know someone comes out and says that, you know, it's really called Passover. I can just you know, pull that one out of my pocket. But, uh, um, but yeah, it's, it's a good point. Definitely. I uh, kidding aside. So, um, yeah, we, we got together last year to, to briefly discuss this. <clears throat> and I think we got into some interesting topics. Um, none of them were, None of them, I think, were were covered in a way that, that fully satisfied me, though. So I, I really wanted to get together to to discuss this again. And um, I had some, yeah. some, maybe some facts on the resurrected Christ. But I also wanted to ask you, um, you know, what some of your traditions for for Easter slash Passover slash first fruits are. I don't really have any traditions, but. Um... You know, I grew up in Hebrew Roots Church, so we celebrated like a Christian version of all of the Jewish feasts. I don't remember a lot about it. I don't think we were doing the full-on cedar meal, but we kept unleavened bread. So, you know, got well acquainted with like marzos and all of that around that time of year. Um, I just don't remember the specifics for how we celebrated first yeah. fruits. Yeah. Um, but uh, as a grown-up, I've, I've done the cedar mill of a believing brother who was married to a, a Jewish lady, a messianic Jewish lady. And so I've done the cedar mill. Uh, usually I've over recent years when my wife and I lived near her parents, we would go around and I'd do a lamb uh, dinner, um, you know, to, to commemorate Christ. But even then, you know, that, you know, obviously the lamb signifies Passover, but again, you know, we're, we're also celebrating first fruits, but, um, but yeah, so I'm not not really tradition bound, but it's a very uplifting time of year. Um, and on a side note, you know, I'm not a Christmas person. I've never celebrated Christmas, but I think one thing that kind of, you know, um, I think a big difference between Christmas and Easter is that even people that like, even Christians that really buy into Christmas would probably be the first to admit there's a lot of other things in play around Christmas. There's a lot of secular oh, yeah. stuff going on, you know, there's... Whereas with Easter, yeah, you got Easter bunnies and a few things, but no one's giving gifts to each other. It's not really a big commercial time of year. I mean, they are trying to sell stuff, especially candy, but it hasn't got that big commercial vehicle behind it of Christmas. And it is also scriptural as Christmas isn't. So to me, like Easter is a lot more, uh, um, it's a lot more, it feels a lot more like all the believers are celebrating Christ and no secular people are you know, really celebrating it in a, in a way Christmas feels like everybody's celebrating something and it's almost like a c- confusion because there's so many people that have got different motives as to why they're getting into Christmas, whether it's to get drunk at the Christmas office yeah. party or, or, or because they're a kid and they love Santa Claus or whatever. But Easter, it feels a lot more like even secular people are making references to, oh, this is a time of year where, where it's about new hope or whatever. Um, and, uh, you know, I like, I really love this time of year because of that, or I say this time of year, we're still in, you know, mid to late March, but um, sometimes it is this this early actually, but or, or almost this early. But but yeah, I mean, and you know how it ties into the season of spring um, as well, just the new life. Where I'm from, you might guess, but um, well, you know, but I mean, anyone listening might guess that I grew up in England, and uh, you know, England at this time at the Easter kind of time of year, like there's blossoms on the trees, you can smell just the fragrance of the flowers in the fields. It's just 
such a beautiful, beautiful time of year um, and just really hopeful, you know, just new life everywhere and, you know, tying, tying just the cycle of creation into the resurrection, which obviously God's creation testifies of Christ in all its, in, in, in pretty much everything. Um, but it's really uplifting to think of that cycle being built into his very plan. Yeah. So it was the diametric opposite in Las Vegas. We couldn't smell anything in the springtime. It just uh, smelled like desert and hot and asphalt. Yeah. But um, <laughs> I, I can imagine. Yeah. yeah. I've obviously been in England during the springtime. We spent four months there, five months there last year in the springtime. It was really beautiful. So yeah, that must've been a pretty idyllic. And I just, a lot more wildflowers in England than anywhere I've been in America. I've lived a few places in America and visited a lot of places and uh, England just seems to have an over- overabundance of flowers and also there's a lot of moisture in the grass and trees so there's, there's just a lot of fragrance sure. everywhere. So it's, a, it's a real beautiful time. Yeah. There is fragrance in Las Vegas but I don't know that it's a, a an attractive fragrance <laughs> so yeah. All right well yeah I mean for me um you know, the, the whole Passover season, the Pascha season in Orthodoxy is really, really important. It's, and, and this is something that always kind of bothered me about a lot of more Western churches is, you know, you touched upon it briefly, but Christmas is kind of the focal point for a lot of Western churches, even if they may deny it. Um, you know, you, you genuinely see people getting more excited over Christmas, whereas Christmas in Greece, um, maybe not in the last 15, 20 years in the age of the internet where, you know, um, ideologies are spreading much faster but uh, christmas in greece you know or um, among the orthodox um and in, i think i would say a lot of europe up until a certain point was kind of um a it took a back seat to passover to easter right easter is like the thing um and so yeah that always kind of surprised me you know when i would attend other churches and in, in like you'd see bigger attendance at christmas and people really excited to wear their santa hats but you know, the, the discussion of the, the resurrection was like, wasn't maybe as big. And then I'm like, wow, that's, that's surprising to me. Cause it's, it's, to me, it's, it's my new year. It's, it, you know, it, that's when everything is renewed or at least we celebrate, you know, when everything was renewed around that time. And, um, yeah, I, I think it's really fascinating. I think yeah. It's really fascinating. So, and, you know, Christmas, oh yeah, so go ahead. just one yeah, last sure, thought sure. with Christmas, obviously it's not scriptural as far as God didn't, institute it but also if a great person on earth achieved something great you know in a in a secular or everyday sense if someone achieves something great and you're memorializing them you're probably going to show photos of them when they're fully mature you know if they're if they're a scientist you're showing them with the little beakers and like bunsen burners you're not really showing baby photos (laughs) of them you know and i think with christmas we're kind of it's almost it sounds silly to say infantilizing jesus because the uh, the nativity is is a big you know it's a, it was in the gospels there's a reason that god, that god tells us about his babyhood and child a little bit about his childhood but we're still you know there is that connection of like unto us a child is given and goodwill on earth to all men and all that which is you know wonderful you know part of the gospel but you know easter is about the fulfillment of everything that christ was sent to achieve on earth you know i, I would say yeah um yeah you can't you can say, well, he came back as a Holy Spirit, but that's, you know, he'd already gone to heaven by then and came back as a spirit. So really, if you're talking about his earthly course, the, the resurrection was the absolute pinnacle. So it's so far beyond being born as a baby, even though being born as a baby was mysterious and wonderful. So the one festival, it's not scriptural and we're showing baby photos. The other festival is scriptural and we're showing the the, the, 
vastness of his sure, achievement, yeah, you know, and yeah. it's, it's such a not, and it doesn't disrespect him as a baby in any way, but it's such a different message to focus on. Oh yeah. On. Well, I mean, I know I've told you this story before. I probably even said it here, but the, as a testimony to that point, I mean, you know, I, I lived in China for half a decade and we would often go to malls. I don't think it's this way anymore. I think Xi Jinping has, has kind of done away with it the last few years, but you'd go into a mall and see a giant Christmas tree and a Santa Claus and presents and gifts and like, a, you know, uh, Christmas decorations. And I thought it was kind of interesting. It was, you know, kind of brought a little bit of um, Western atmosphere to China if you were ever you know, missing it. But I recall asking, I mean, just coyly asking one of my colleagues, one of my Chinese colleagues, what was being celebrated. And I think maybe I asked more than once. And I, I, one I do recall uh, the, the person said, oh, we are celebrating the coming of Father Christmas, which, you know, for those Americans out there, that's Santa Claus, you know. So um, it's very clear that that secularization that, uh, you know, really, in my opinion, walks hand in hand with the very nature of the devil, you know, to be to to really intermingle the good with the bad to try to confuse people, in my opinion, in my opinion. Um so. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm right there with you. I mean, obviously, I've never never been a Christmas person yeah. anyway, and I it's not something I'm super judgmental about because it's you know, there's plenty of people the world over that love Jesus and keep Christmas. But um, at the same time, my thing is like I've talked. I used to work at a company where most of the people were professing Christians, and if I criticize Christmas a little, they'd be like, I'd say like it's there's so much, so many distractions, so many like it's secular, it's commercial, and they'd be like, no, it's all about Jesus for me if you push them on it, but I could go a whole Christmas season in that office with perhaps 25 believers in yeah. there and not hear Jesus name once in the whole season. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, you know, it didn't really, you know, so, I mean, it, the, the very mere fact that believers can make their way for a season and not mention them, it, it does show there's a lot going on yeah. there and I'm not judging their heart as to whether it internally, but it just shows where's Easter. You can't really go through the whole of Easter and not mention Christ. Yeah, that's just one of those things that, um, and I don't want to go down this road too far, but a lot of believers will often use that as um, as a shield for for bad behavior. Well, you shouldn't judge. Christ asked us not to judge. But in fact, uh, Christ did ask us to test the spirits. He said, you shall know them by their fruit. Paul asked us to judge inside the church. And, and, and you know, it, yeah, if, for a lot of reasons, and I, I'm not, I'm, I'm very apolitical, but for a lot of reasons, I think, Christianity is a very libertarian religion in the sense that um, we're not to be bothered by people who are outside the body. Um, you know, they, they can kill us if they want. According to the scripture, they can kill us if they want to. They can take the body if they want to because God is in control of the soul. If they want to act debauched and, and utterly evil, you know, we can we can get away from them. We can flee them. We can, you know, do a lot of things, but we're not to judge them but we are to judge within the body and paul reinforces that in the in the new testament when you know people aren't being discerning and allowing any kind of behavior i think i i'm i'm against that personally i think you know we have to be i think part of the problem i think part of the problem is authority has become and this is we were i know at some point we're going to talk about the idea of organized religion as a whole but i think with forty thousand denominations that are earthly denominations, you have 40,000 splinters of earthly authority. Um, and it, like in the early days, there was spiritual authority and it was concentrating people that had been with Christ and then passed on that word. So you look at when Paul and Barnabas were commissioned, they were ministering to the Lord, all of them there. 
And then they all heard the Spirit say, separate unto me Paul and Barnabas. And even after they heard that, they prayed and fasted and laid hands on them. So it's like the whole thing was very serious, very spiritual, very committed and and under the the guiding of the Holy Spirit, whereas we have 40,000 denominations now. So if you're in the wrong denomination and you try to judge within the body, they're just going to look at you and be like, well, you're a Baptist and I'm a, you know, Episcopalian. So, you know, what authority do you have anyway? It's, it's a very, you know, fractured, um, splintered uh, religion. Yeah. So yeah. It's a really good point. It, it makes it very hard. So for me, you know, not, you know, I, I'm not a member of a, of a local um, organization and I, you know, I try and basically enjoy the unity of Christ of anyone that wants to enjoy it. Um, but I feel like that there's a certain, because of we're in such a different, but in a sense, the quote unquote rules aren't different, but the context of where we are in the history of the church is so different. to those early days that I feel like you have to get close to somebody to earn the right to admonish, rebuke, exhort, you know, otherwise, you know, it's, it's very, it's very difficult. Um, and then besides that also, if I say something to someone and they ignore it or, you know what I mean? Or they don't see it, I tend to just let it, let it go. If, if, if I've said my piece and that person's like, I don't see it or I still disagreed and I just let it go rather than keep, keep chipping away usually, yeah, you know? Yeah. So it's, it's not like it's changed with, with, our, with us all being ruled by one head, but it's so different. If you look at 2 billion people in 40,000 denominations that are set up like earthy institutions compared to 5,000, 7,000 people concentrated around Jerusalem initially with a very select group of people who'd been with Christ and were eyewitnesses of his resurrection. It's yeah. Nothing's different about our headship or the body we belong to, but the context of where we are in history is very different and a lot more difficult to navigate. I would, I would, you know, guess. Yeah. You make really good points, really good points. And I think we have definitely set the, set the foundation for this conversation. There's a couple of unanswered messages that you've left me. Um, where I, I know I want to get into it if, if you're willing to maybe in the next couple of weeks to uh, to go down the institutional versus um, unorganized sort of route if you know what I'm saying and I don't want to straw man it or, or you know diminutize your points in any in any way when I say those words but uh, yeah I think it's a really fascinating conversation yeah. Uh, definitely whenever you're up for it but yeah as far as um but yeah getting back to the resurrection you had some really good points um that you brought up yesterday uh concerning like the the timing well some of the signs around the resurrection to begin with like pertaining even to china well i mean uh, yeah oh definitely i think that um uh well let's see let's see yeah i so i have a whole list of things that i wrote down when i when i put together some of the work that i put on this podcast and yeah, the, the the first one would be so these are peripheral accounts of the the resurrection or things that happened around the resurrection, and one of the reasons that I think this is important is because of um, their comparative relevance in in history. So, for example, um, I know I've said this before, but when you think about like for example, my namesake Alexander the Great, um, he had. Let's see. I, I know. I, I know there were two histories written about him that didn't come until around 400 years until after he lived. Let me just check my notes to make sure that's correct. Um, one was by. But you've dropped the great. Sorry. I said you've dropped the great from your name. <laughs> yeah. So you, you just I, got- should, I should indicate Alexander the Great <laughs> uh, was my namesake, right? So um, the first written histories 
uh, about him were by historians Arian and Plutarch, and they were penned 500 years after he died. So a lot of what was said about him was oral tradition, right? And then um, there was no biographies. There were no books written about the religious figure Buddha until actually it's believed to be five to 700 years after he lived by Lumbini and Shakyat. So all of it was oral tradition. And some of that could have fallen to legend, right? Or could, you know, legend could have, could have um, developed in that time even though oral history was known to be way better back then. And, you know, there are, there are some, some historians who, who dive into how good oral history was back then. And there were some, some pretty impressive, impressive folks. <clears throat> uh, Gothis of Zoroaster. So it's claimed that Zoroastrianism is the first oldest, mo- uh, it's not the first oldest, the, which is claimed to be the first monotheistic religion. Um, at, let, let me just read my notes here. Um, it was the first human attempt at a monotheistic religion at a thousand years before Christ by some accounts, yet the first books written regarding it, such as the Parsi biography, were written in A.D. 1600. So to be clear, that's a purported 2,600 years after the religion supposedly was founded, right? So I'm not abnegating the merits well, of oral history. Oral history is important, and, and I think people are way more reliable with regard to oral history because societies were stronger and cultures were stronger back then, and they acted as a system of of uh, controls and checks and balances to make sure that transference of, of the history was pretty solid. Right. But when you consider Christ, I mean, um, it's now pretty accepted by, by, by historians that um, the first epistles were written anywhere from 10 to 30 years after he walked the shores of Galilee. And some people put, them within one year of his life. And that, that would be Dr. Gary Habermas, who has, who makes really good case for it. And the gospels were probably, you know, written before the destruction of the Jerusalem temple, as well as the, the rest of the scripture. So everything that was penned about him that wound up in our Bible was within 40 years of his life. So when you compare it to some other great figures like Buddha or Alexander the Great, or even other, other, you know, major figures in antiquity everything that was written about christ was a you know it was a relative heartbeat from from when he walked the shores of galilee and then the other thing is the sheer number the the volume of things that were written about christ you had you know thousands upon thousands of manuscripts and peripheral histories and opinions and you know all written by people who loved him and who were indifferent and and uh, people who hated him as well. Um, so I think that these peripheral accounts of the things that happened surrounding the the crucifixion are really, really important because they're, in, in my opinion, it, it's one of the most corroborated events in in all of history. And forgive me if that's scatterbrained. You know, my caffeine wore off about, I want to say, nine, ten hours ago. So right now I'm digesting my dinner yeah. and I feel like I'm just rambling like an old man. But uh um, that, that makes perfect sense. I think it's very well explained. I mean, you know, there's, there's no there's no figures that have that level of corroboration. And we're talking 2,000 years ago. It's, it's incredible. Yeah, um, yeah, definitely. And the amount, of agreement, the amount of agreement in the manuscripts. And, yeah, it's, uh, it's unprecedented. Well, yeah, as you said, we did get into a couple of um, the – crazier histories. I think I, I like to start with my one of the oddest ones that I think is one of my favorite. And 
I, I stumbled on this in an academic forum online and that led me to a book which contained the history. I can't recall what the book's name is, but uh, um, it was essentially it discusses the account of King Wangwu of the latter Han dynasty. So um, this is pertaining to the spring of AD and they put it at 31 through 34. So right around the exact same time of the, of the crucifixion of Christ, right? So, and the account, it says, in the day of Guihai, the last day of the month, there was a solar eclipse. The emperor avoided the throne room, suspended all military activities, and did not handle any official business for five days. And he proclaimed, my poor character has caused this calamity, that the sun and the moon were veiled. I am feared and, tr- and trembling. What can I say? Anyone who presents a memorial is not allowed to mention the word holy. And then another short and another entry made a short time later referring to the same eclipse said summer fourth fourth month of the year on the day of renwu the imperial edict reads yin and yang have mistakenly switched and the sun and the moon were eclipsed the sins of all the people are now on one man now mind you this is a chinese account they would have no reason to to understand the the jewish narrative of a messiah or you know his christ's atonement but uh, King Wangwu wrote, the sins of all the people are on, now on one man. The emperor proclaims pardon to all under heaven. And then there's one last commentary that reads, <clears throat> um, Eclipse on the day of Guihai, man from heaven died. Um, I don't know. I, I, I don't really have a lot to add to that other than that I think it's absolutely fascinating that that would be written in a Chinese history at the time of the crucifixion of the Christ. Yeah, and it, it, so they, they clearly had some understanding of spiritual things, a, a very mysterious understanding. But, you know, we know the Magi had an understanding which led them to look for the birth of the one born king of the Jews. And so there was there's un, there was understanding in the East. And it's veiled in mystery, really, how God's dealt with the Eastern peoples. Sure. But they clearly had some kind of understanding both to seek the, the baby Jesus and to... Um, and to have things like this where they had some understanding of astronomical events. Yeah. yeah. So, well, I mean, I think you had brought up the Magi yesterday and um, that led me to the idea of the, the Bethlehem star. And um, on the topic of the, the darkness at the time of Christ's crucifixion, that was a, a, a darkness that lasted for, I think it was three hours that we, Three hours we, we discussed yesterday. Was it three hours? Um, let's see. Yeah, yeah, it's three hours. So yeah. scriptures say from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour. This would have been about noon to three. Um, so that's no normal normal eclipse. And, the, the you know, it's corroborated by all four of the Gospels, and it's also corroborated by all of the peripheral cultures so you know the chinese the the romans the greeks and the jews all have some account of this this darkness that fell over the land and the other important thing is they were these were people who are very well versed in astronomy they they really knew their stuff and um for them to be shocked and surprised by an event like this i mean anyone would be surprised and shocked by a three-hour eclipse but um it, it clearly shows that you know it was something very out of the ordinary and unusual. And, you know, paper was scarce back then for a lot of cultures and writing down things into a history was considered very significant. Like most, a lot of people don't understand this, but most histories or histories in antiquity 
read like highlight reels. They weren't, you know, a perfect account of someone's life from the time they, they learned how to kick a soccer ball until, you know, you know, they read their first book, you know, history's only read like highlight reels because of how scarce resources were. So in order to, you know, for a lot of cultures to write this thing down, this event, it probably meant something important to them. Like it was a, a big deal, right? Yeah, like that's a really excellent point. Yeah. And, and, and tethering that to the the the, the, um, the discussion of the Magi, this is just a bit of an, an offshoot. But I, I said this yesterday. The that led me to believe that the star was more than just you know some type of um, convergence of the planets or some type of unusually bright supernova or something like that. I think it was supernatural. I think it was you know something. Yeah. And one of my favorite uh, tidbits about the Magi, and this is not didn't come from me. Uh, was years ago, somebody said this, or maybe I read it somewhere. But contrasting the shepherds in Luke two with the Magi in Matthew, the, the shepherds had him announced as the savior, and they were in the hills of Judea, and they were clearly near Bethlehem. When they had finished with the announcement, it was like, okay, let's go find him, you know. Um, and they and that's a picture of salvation. There was no cost. It was like very convenient to go see him. They didn't have to bring any gifts. It was so it, it's very much a picture of salvation. He was announced as a savior. It would, they could go see him without bringing any gifts. It was a quick journey, but imagine he was announced as a King or Lord. Um, and it was an arduous journey that had great danger and cost. And they had to be following something and led by something, which was a star. And then they had expensive and costly gifts when they got there. And it's showing two sides of our relationship with Christ, the savior we know him as savior as a free gift with nothing, no effort on our part, no cost on our part. But to go on to be fully submitted to him as Lord is a long and arduous journey that does have a cost. There is a cost to pay. You know, we have to reckon the cost up front of the overall journey of discipleship that leads to him being fully reigning over us in every way, uh, which is the fullness of his kingdom in us. Um, and those two groups that he was announced to just, it's really amazing how they show those two aspects of our relationship with Christ. Wow. That is, yeah, that's an incredible point. I, I would have nothing to add to it, but yeah, that, that's really incredible. Uh, yeah. Good point. Good point. Okay. Um, so yeah, I just had a couple of, a couple more, you know, peripheral histories. I thought that were kind of interesting. I brought them up. Um, Thallus, a Roman contemporaneous with Christ noted in 52 AD on the whole world, there pressed a most fearful darkness and the rocks were rent by an earthquake and many places in Judea and other districts were thrown down. This darkness, Thallus, in his in the third book of his history, recalls, um, appeared without reason, um, and there was an eclipse of the sun. Um, so yeah, it, just another another corroboration of an eclipse that kind of you know surprised people, and also that you know there was yeah there was earthquakes and just darkness over the land. Really, um, Phlegnon and eighty. Oh, sorry, go on. Yeah. No, 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 carry on. No, I'll, I'll follow on to your point. So. Oh, yeah, please. I, I, I was just going to move on to the next history. So, yeah, what do you got? Well, this would probably tie in. I, I thought you were, you were done, but I was going to say that, you know, we talked yesterday about some of the omens, which I know we'll get onto the, in the Talmud, but one of the indirect potential witnesses of the earthquake is that in the Talmud, there was an acknowledgement that the chamber of hewn stones was damaged around that time. Oh, which yeah, yeah. kind of makes it so... For anyone listening, uh, the Chamber of Hewn Stones was where the Sanhedrin pronounced judgment. So it would have been the place where they pronounced their fake, or I shouldn't say fake, but their false judgment on Christ in their kangaroo court. 
the implication is that it's acknowledged in the Talmud that the Chamber of uh, Chamber of Human Stones was damaged around that time. Obviously, it was you know you would think it would have been this earthquake, and afterwards the Sanhedrin had to move out, and they basically ended up having to meet in what was basically a place of commerce in the temple grounds, I believe. Yeah. So there is every chance that that was the last ever judgment pronounced in that kind of like August hall because the last judgment was such a false judgment that it was a judgment came even upon the the place itself by by the sound of things and that's in the Talmud so yeah that's definitely the most organic direction to go with with that last point i think that's one of the most fascinating things to me and that was recorded in the Talmud which is any of the jewish history um so yeah absolutely fascinating there now they they would have never admitted to that earthquake being as a result of of the crucifixion of the Christ, but yet yeah, it all happened forty years before the destruction of the Jerusalem Temple. So yeah. it's like uh, they were evicted from a temple which was no longer needed. You know, um, really, really yeah. interesting. Almost like uh, birds being kicked out of a nest to try to learn to fly before it's too late. If you know what I'm saying. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that that one's really interesting. Okay, so. Um, yeah, just got a couple more peripheral histories, and then and definitely want to get into a few more of those uh, omens of impending doom. Um, so, okay, we we went through Guangwu, Thallus, just maybe one or two more. Phlegnon eighty eighty wrote in the time of Tiberius Caesar at full moon, there was an eclipse of the sun from the sixth hour to the ninth hour. Now that's interesting. Uh, at full moon, so that means that the moon would have had to be you know in the wrong place to to cause darkness over the land. Um, Origen also mentions, um, now Phlegnon in the 13th or 14th book of his Chronicles, uh, not only ascribed to Jesus a knowledge of future events, but also testified that the result corresponded to his predictions. And then Origen goes on to say, and with regard to the eclipse in the time of Tiberius Caesar, in whose reign Jesus appears to have been crucified and the great earthquakes, which then took place. And then that's the end of the quote, um, and then it, it goes to another place because I'm just capturing the bits that really discuss Christ because he, he goes on to discuss something else. Jesus, while alive, was of no assistance to himself, but that he arose after death and exhibited the marks of his punishment and showed how his hands had been pierced by nails. Um, so obviously, you know, the, the, the um, peripheral histories are not limited there. There are other accounts, um, and the list is pretty extensive in, in antiquity. So... Everything ranging from Tacitus, Mara Bar Serapian, the Jewish, philo- Jewish philosopher, Pliny the Younger, Josephus, the Talmud. Um, the Talmud labeled Christ a magician who enticed Israel to go astray. Um, so even even his enemies are saying, "Hey, he was doing some pretty interesting interesting things, right?" And he was able to, you know, I don't know. The, to me, that's it's just almost a um, subliminal yeah. corroboration of miracles, but. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I would say so. And even with Tacitus, I think Tacitus talks about um, a, a most mischievous superstition um, arising out of that time, and I would think that would be talking about the resurrection. Yeah, yeah. He, he mentions Christus, who, who and um, and he says a most, I think he says a most mischievous superstition arose, and that has to be to me the resurrection. Sure. Um, so, yeah, it's really interesting corroboration when your enemies are corroborating you that speaks volumes. oh yeah yeah definitely definitely um 
I was going to make a, a comment about the news not even giving credit to their enemies, but I don't want to go into the political the, the political route. But I, I think it, <laughs> it's an interesting point that you make there because, yeah, um, you know, you'd think that they would just kind of maybe sweep them, try to sweep them under the rug, but that would be impossible, I suppose. Okay, so omens of well. impending doom. So um, you have you have the crucifixion of the Christ, and then you have all of these omens which took place between the what we believe was AD thirty two, the spring of AD thirty two, and um, AD seventy. So that would have been when the destruction of the Jerusalem Temple took place. Am I getting that wrong? Yeah, it was the last. I mean, they say 40 years. I'm assuming they're rounding down or sorry, rounding up or whatever, because obviously you and I believe that the crucifixion and resurrection was after AD 31. So, yeah, yeah. Um, around 40 years. Um, and, well, you know, this is backtracking a bit, but um, one of the reasons we believe, what, what was the reason you listed it being after AD 30 or AD 31? It's because of. Um, Pilate, uh, he, had, he basically, uh, so Pilate's behavior has to be post 31 because the history of Pilate basically in 26 AD, Tiberius, the emperor, withdrew to an island and basically became an absentee emperor. That's and right. he left in his place a guy called Sejanus, who I could be mispronouncing that. My ancient Latin's a bit off, but uh, <laughs> he, uh, he, uh, he was the de facto emperor. Like, Tiberius was basically nowhere to be seen. This guy was ruling Rome and Pilate was buddies of him. So Pilate was like, you know, very, very well connected. And also he had a reputation for being very cruel to the Jews. Um, he wasn't a very nice person, put it that way. And I think it's even referenced where people were asking Christ about the, the, the blood of certain Galileans that Pilate mixed with, with their sacrifices. I don't know. I can't remember. I don't know if I've even read what that pertained to, but clearly he was being, you know, he didn't suffer falls gladly. And I think that was well known. But then in AD 31, in the fall, I think October, suddenly there was ac- accusations against Sejanus of, of treason. T- Tiberius reappears. And in this blink of an eye, Sejanus is suddenly executed for treason, goes from being the de facto emperor to the de facto Caesar to being executed as a traitor. And now Pilate's in a very tricky situation from, from being very secure in his position Suddenly he's an associate with someone who just got executed for treason. And you see how he behaves is completely consistent with that. He's vacillating. He's unsure. And the Jews even throw it in his face, but they say anyone, anyone who claims to be a king isn't a friend of Caesar. They're like throwing it in his face, his troubles, basically. So it clearly has to be Pilate post 31. It just has to be, um, you know, it just doesn't make any sense otherwise based on what we know about Pilate and his history. So yeah, and I, I think I, I responded to that that the so the TV show The Chosen, which we spoke about the last time we got together, they they tried to remedy Pilate's um, implied naivety with you know making him a or casting him as a younger man, and that, yeah, as you just said, that couldn't have been the case because there is a history um, outside of the scripture of him being a, a tyrant and very evil with Jews, um, and. You know, he was just skating on thin ice at this point when when he was overseeing the crucifixion of Christ. He just didn't want to kick up a fuss and gain the attention of the authorities, right? So, um, yeah, there's yeah. far more of a case for him being slightly older, I suppose. 
Yeah, and 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 that just you know that again thirty one AD. I think that makes thirty two the strongest. And I think we talked about thirty two being one that was posited by perhaps the the guy that wrote the Coming Prince. Yeah, but, so that was Sir Robert Anderson. Know, it, I'm sorry. And that's that's a strong argument for 32 simply because all that had just happened in October of 31. So it's within the law. If you're talking April 32, it's just six months ago Sejanus has been executed. If he, if we, if it was even AD 33, it was a year and a half ago, maybe there's other things, maybe it's died down a bit. I don't know exactly. But the whole, to me, it's a strong argument for 32 just because of how recent it would have been. Um, and he definitely... You know, if you told someone, if you show someone how Pilate acted and you say, here is Pilate, here's the history of Pilate, here's what happened, everybody would put it as, you know, post-execution of, of his buddy, you know. Yeah. It just is his behavior. And even, like I said, even the fact that Jews mock him with or threaten him really indirectly by saying that anyone that calls himself a king is not a friend of Caesar. You know? mm-hmm. And and what you were referencing was um, the uh, Daniel's 70-week prophecy um, I, I, so essentially there, there was a gentleman who did the legwork on this. His name was Sir Robert Anderson. He wrote a book called the coming prince and he determined that the, it was essentially going to be 183,880 days. I think it is. Let me see if I got that number right. Well, yeah, 183,880 days from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem until in, in, in the Hebrew, I think it's Mashiach and the gate until the Messiah. Right. Now, there were four, a lot of people think that there were four decrees to rebuild Jerusalem. In reality, there were, there were three decrees that came before the main one. So I think one was for the temple. No, so two, two were for the temple. One was for the, the wall surrounding the temple. Um, so the, the first, first one was Cyrus. Um, then one of the other Artaxerxes, and I can't recall the, the third person, but, the fourth person was Artaxerxes Longjamanus, and he decreed to rebuild Jerusalem, right? And so technically that, that was the trigger point. That was when the prophecy began, right? So yeah. um, Anderson basically did the math. He spent you know a good portion of his life and determined that from uh, the decree of Artaxerxes Longjamanus in 445 B.C., Let's see. To the Messiah would be one hundred seventy-three thousand eight hundred eighty days, um, and the the date that he determined. Okay, so it was March fourteenth of four forty-five BC. He actually determined when it was that Artaxerxes made that decree, and that brought him to April sixth of thirty-two AD, um, making Gabriel's margin for error zero because by his calculation. April 6th, and he is, he made a very good point for this, is when the triumphal entry occurs. And what happens on the day of the triumphal entry? Christ allows himself to be declared a king. And in fact, it's the only time in his earthly ministry that he allowed himself to be declared a king. So Christ fulfilled multiple prophecies on that day. Uh, you know, essentially, the, the in my opinion, the Daniel prophecy was the biggest. Um, and, and that, of course, you know, makes the case for the, the 32 A.D., crucifixion, resurrection. A lot of people come up with a different chronology uh, for a couple of different reasons. Uh, One would be they start their count on the wrong decree, maybe at the decree of Cyrus because it was the first, but in fact it was not the the actual decree to rebuild Jerusalem. Or they work backwards from a Friday crucifixion um, 
tradition and the Friday crucifixion for a lot of reasons doesn't work out. And there are other people who have, who I think we've had that discussion before, but for a number of reasons, the Friday crucifixion doesn't work out. Um, we, we more determined it's, it was probably on a Wednesday or a Thursday that the crucifixion took place. Um, and I mean, if, if you'll take any reasons from that, I think you'll, you'll need three days and three nights to have Christ fulfill the, you know, or, or be the fulfillment of the, um, of the Jonah on the heart of the, 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 the whale story, I guess. And, and, and you know, other, other, uh, predict our, our prophecies as well. But, uh, th there's another, what were some of the other points? Do you recall of why, why it would have been Wednesday or Thursday outside of the two, the two Sabbaths? Oh yeah. Yeah. There's so there's the mention, that's right. The mention of the two Sabbaths. Um, so it was, I can't remember if it's Mark where they talk about after it's plural they're like after the Sabbaths had passed. So clearly, obviously one of the Sabbaths was the weekly Sabbath, but the other one yeah. would have been a, a festive Sabbath. So yeah. I, I think a lot, a lot of people aren't connected to the Jewish traditions that were around at that time. So when that, they think there was just one Sabbath and that was it, but in the middle of the festival, there was the fe the feast Sabbaths that were a part of the feast. And then there was the weekly Sabbath still. Yeah. So there would have been a, um, yeah. So you're right. Okay. So the, the, uh, so here's three passages. So the, the mention of the dual Sabbaths in Matthew 28, one, the longer than one Sabbath day journey to Jericho in John 12, one and three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Um, so I don't see how you get three days and three nights from, from Friday. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah. People argue that Jews considered any part of a day as a day. So the argument is that even five minutes on Friday night would be a day. And then like Saturday's a day. And then even five minutes on Sunday morning would be a day. Cause any part of a day was considered a, a whole day in, in Jewish, but then to specifically say three days and three nights, I feel like takes it out of that territory. If he just said three days and the Jews considered days in that way, then it's a stronger argument. But for him to specifically say three days and three nights, I feel like that seems very explicit, you know? Definitely. So, yeah. And, I mean, that, that to me is it, at the bottom of all the, the good arguments. I mean, the, the best one to me is the, the calculation done by, oh, I mean, I think, no, it, the, the one discussing uh, the history of, of Pilate and his dealings with, you know, Sejanus and, you know, the hot water he was in, in 31, I think was good. And then the, you know, the prophecy of the 183,880 days. And then, I mean, they're all pretty solid to put it. Yeah. yeah, it all ties together pretty well. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. Um. All right. And then yeah, there there were just a, a couple of more uh, omens of impending doom that that took place that sort of marked the the Jewish temple as as no longer needed the actual physical brick and mortar temple because the the temple of God was now the body of Christ, right? So um, yeah. Mark. 1538 notes that the veil of the Jewish temple was torn completely in two from top to bottom during the earthquake. Uh, the veil, according to Dr. Robert D. Mock, acted as a sort of interdimensional door which separated the Lord God away from the rest of his creation and allowed the high priest to perform rituals prescribed by Jewish tradition. Exodus noted the fabrication standards of the veil, mentioning that it was blue, purple, and scarlet fine linen with designs of the cherubim woven into it and hung into four pillars of acacia wood. So behind the veil, uh, as you know, yeah, behind the veil was the ark with the mercy seat resting on it based on rabbinic sources. The curtain was supposed to be, here's the interesting thing to me. 
because whenever I think of the curtain being ripped, I think of like, um, what would it be like? A, what's it, a tapestry or something? Not that thick. Yeah. Well, I mean, tapestries are thick, but like not, not crazy, crazy thick, but, um, is essentially uh, based on rabbinic sources. The curtain was supposed to be over one meter thick or you know, close to a yard, uh, thick, uh, 20 meters long and 10 meters wide as it was made of multiple layers of fine linen woven together. So the, the earthquake, which would have torn it, would have had to have been miraculously directed at the temple or incredibly strong to you know accomplish such a feat because you know the veil was torn and the temple was destroyed down to its bedrock. Um, and yeah. I recall you making another interesting point years ago, and I don't know that there's any actual corroboration for this, but uh, the idea, do you remember this? This was, this is a real sort of, um, what's it called? Uh, uh, this is getting to real fringe territory, but the notion of the ark being under the temple where the earthquake took place, or was it under the cross at Golgotha? What was it you said? Yeah, it, I think it, this was a rumor that was going around Jerusalem when one of my brothers visited it. Um, but I think I think the guy in question was was kind of a teller of tall tales. I think the concept is interesting, though. Yeah, this guy had claimed to like go into these passages around the area where Golgotha might have been, and that and saw the ark, and there was like dried blood on top of it, and. So his whole claim was like that the cross would have been directly below or directly above the ark, ah, and when yeah. the earthquake happened, like blood literally dripped onto the ark. But I mean, the guy evidently did did tell tall, tall tales, although that is a very imaginative one. But the interesting thing is that how I heard it was like a brother of mine was in Jerusalem. It was kind of quote unquote the word on the street. So an interesting way to actually hear that. But um, you know, so it wasn't like oh, I went online. It uh-huh. was like we're talking in the we're talking late nineties, you know, most more or less pre-internet era. And my, one of my brothers heard it from somebody in Jerusalem. So that makes it more interesting from that regard, because it's someone that was local, but, um, but it, the idea of that is, is amazing. Yeah, Obviously the arc yeah. was lost. But, that That's yeah. an interesting one. I, I, I mean, I wouldn't, it doesn't overturn any theological apple carts, but I think it's a really interesting one. It's kind of fun to play with. I mean, the symbolism would have been incredible yeah. if that, um, if that, the case because uh yeah for the actual ark to go for the actual blood of christ to be sprinkled on the mercy seat would have been um yeah i know there's a heavenly mercy seat and all, and, and the ark itself was a symbol but um it still would have been kind of a, a full circle for the actual sacrificial lamb's blood to have been sprinkled on there after all the other you know after all the other blood that had been sprinkled on there that is pretty amazing um, yeah that's pretty amazing but then you know the the Ethiopians claim that they have it. So, I mean, you'd have to be debating with that crowd as well, because there are a number of people who actually buy the claim that the Ethiopians. Oh yeah. They have it. And, they, and some people, like an island. I, I create... Sorry. Sorry. I, you went, you went silent there. I think we just had a, oh, okay, a disconnect. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, some um, people actually think there's good reason to believe that the Ethiopians have it, but um, I don't know that I was convinced when I heard it and I can't recall what the reason was. Well, there is an island, I believe, in Ethiopia. I think, uh, and I like in a small lake, smallish lake, and there are guards guarding the building in the middle of it, and they claim they're guarding the ark. And only certain, like, if you're a guard, you have to be a guard for life, basically, or maybe up to a certain age, and then someone else takes over, and it's like very mysterious. Um, 
but uh, I don't know why they'd have it if they did have it. And it's, I'm sure God has a lot of good reasons for not. I mean, if the ark was discovered, the amount of idolatry that even Christians would commit oh, yeah. in going to visit it, bowing to it, and everything. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure there's a lot of good. Re- and we all. And as long, I guess, as long as you look away from it uh, when it starts um, zapping people through the <laughs> through the midriff. Um, <laughs> Per, per Indiana Jones and the, and the Ghostbusters combination movie, but um, uh, no, but uh, you know, yeah, I, it, there would be I, so much idolatry if it was um discovered. I mean, you know, Christians will buy a vial of holy water from a from an evangelist website. I hate to think what we'd all do if there was an actual Ark of the Covenant. It'd be like Ma- the Christian Medina, you know. So, or no, is it Medina where the? No, it's Mecca where the where that big black uh, yeah rock is yeah. right. The um, yeah. there was a meteorite. Oh, wow. Um, okay, so we just got. I think there's a couple more here. I can't seem to find the one regarding the menorah, but there is a nine foot tall menorah, and the Jewish history, the Talmud recorded that they could no longer light it. Now I don't know what reasoning you would, you would place, you know, on that, but you'd think that these people who had dedicated their life to lighting this, you know, glorified candlestick could could illuminate it but they could no longer do that and they took that as a sign of impending doom so the the you know the chamber of hewn stones where they conducted judgment as you brought that up um was destroyed and they had to conduct all of their judgments outside as if to say that um the judgment on christ was the last they would ever pronounce because it was a false judgment um the veil was torn which was over a meter thick the nine foot tall menorah would no longer light and the last one is um, they had these huge brass doors to the temple known as the Heichel or the Heckel that took over 20 men to open and close. So they're made of brass and you know, it took a load of people to, to get these heavy things moving open and closed. And yet they would mysteriously open on their own and stay open, right? So every time they would close them, they would reopen by themselves. Um. So Josephus said this about the heckle doors. He said, um, moreover, the eastern gate on the inner court, which was of brass and vastly heavy, had been with difficulty shut by 20 men and rested upon a basis armed with iron and had bolts fastened very deep into the firm floor, which was there made of one entire stone, was seen to be opened of its own accord about the sixth hour of the night. Now those that kept watch in the temple came thereupon running to the captain of the temple and told him of it, who then came up thither. I'm not very good at my thithers. Um, and not without great difficulty was able to shut the gate again. So this also appeared to the vulgar to be a very happy prodigy, as if God did thereby open them the gate of happiness. But the men of learning understood it, that the security of their holy house was dissolved of its own accord and that the gate was opened for the advantage of their enemies. So these publicly declared that this signal foreshadowed the desolation that was coming upon them. So that was uh, Josephus in oh, yeah. the Wars of the Jews. Yeah. And there were, there were a couple more, right? The, the black and white stone and the um, the red cord. What? what? Well, I don't know about these. What was the black and white stone? In the Talmud, okay, so the high priest would, uh, when he was choosing which goat was going to be like there was the two goats and one was for the lord and one was a scapegoat and basically I, d- I don't know the exact ceremony behind this but he would draw in a bag i think it was in a bag and he'd pick out there was a white stone and a black stone and he'd pick out one i don't know if there was just one of each or a bunch of each 
but there is equal odds of picking either out. And in the 200 years leading up to 30 AD, there, there was an equal number of black and white stones. It was as random as you'd expect. For 40 years in a row from 30 AD, he picked out a black stone. And the odds of that happening are 5.5 5. billion to 1 over then. Where is this recorded? Like you have far. That is, this was t- in the Talmud. Was like, it really? That is interesting. Yeah, or actually, I think I think Josephus mentions it as well. No, hang on. Uh, let me look it up. That instantly yeah. trumps all of the stuff I've already brought up. That, that was a pretty good, pretty good finale. If that's the only yeah, and then there was, uh, yeah. So the Talmud, uh, so the Talmud says the rabbis taught forty years before the temple was destroyed, the lot never came into the right hand. So that was the black stone. The red wall did not become white. The western light did not burn, and the gates of the temple opened of themselves. There was four events. The, the the red cord, I'll have to read this because I've got it open now to jog my memory. Um, uh, so there was a crimson strip of cloth tied to the Azazel goat, which is the scapegoat, I believe. A portion of this red cloth was removed from the goat and tied to the temple door. Each year, the red cloth on the temple door mysteriously turned white as if to signify the atonement of another Yom Kippur was acceptable to the Lord. This happened every year miraculously until 30 AD, and then the cloth remained crimson every year until the day of the temple's destruction. Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. That's also Josephus. Uh, it's, it's the Talmud. The I think Talmud. Uh, Josephus. Josephus did mention the door as well. So what you read from Josephus was correct as well. But the Talmud mentions all four events. Wow. So, yeah. You, you're gonna have to send me that link. So, I really like that. Yeah, that's a good one. That's really good. Yeah, I mean, it's a, I mean, even if you just take the black stone, like you know, five point five billion to one. <laughs> um, yeah, just amazing. Um, and the amount of the amount of the amount of foreboding that must have caused, you know, the the Jewish, you know, religious leaders weren't without understanding, and they would have been, you know, in our modern parlance, they would have been freaking out. I'm sure. <laughs> especially as it unfolded year after year after year, you know, three, four, five years might seem a coincidence. When they're into 10, 15, 20 years, it must have, the sense of foreboding must have just grown and grown and grown, you know. Wow, yeah, that, that is pretty amazing. That's pretty amazing when you think about it. I think one, one other point I'd make as well is that, you know, the temple was destroyed and obviously as a judgment of God and in a way, of, uh, in a, way a coming of Christ in judgment, it could be argued, Um but, uh, you know, people think the temple is going to be rebuilt. And I think we've touched on this before. I don't believe it will be. And if it was, it wouldn't be the temple of God because the body of Christ is a temple of God. But also everyone kind of assumes that the, that the, the Dome of the Rock doesn't belong on a temple mount. <clears throat> but if you look in Galatians, Paul says he, he talks about Hagar and Sarah being allegories and that Hagar is an allegory of the present Jerusalem of his time, the natural Jerusalem. And that Sarah was a allegory of the heavenly Jerusalem. In other words, because Sarah was the mother of the ch- child of promise, so the heavenly Jerusalem, the the ch- children of promise come from, which is those those in Christ. Whereas the children of bondage was actually ascribed to Jews according to the flesh, the the actual earthly Jerusalem. So, even though those Jews descended from Isaac in the flesh. Paul said that they actually the allegory was that they were of Hagar, which was Ishmael. And we know that the Muslims come, come from Ishmael. So really there's an Ishmaelite temple 
on the physical temple mount and it actually ties in perfectly with galatians because that was the allegory you know that the the natural jerusalem actually corresponded to hagar giving birth to children of bondage so having an ishmaelite temple actually perfectly fits that allegory um whereas i think we're brought up to think it's it shouldn't be there it's alien you know there should be the temple of the jews there but it actually completely fits with with what paul says in galatians yeah that that is really amazing and there's another scripture that some believe ties to that temple as well and it's at the end of daniel um and i'm not good at, at setting this up but i think it's um the 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 counts that are given in daniel 12 so 1290 days and the 1335 days so i think the 1290 days um those are interpreted as years prophetically and there's a few reasons why why we believe that it's just the way the jews did things but that count from the time of the prophecy to the time of to the end of of so the the 1290 days i believe let me look this up um so let's see so the end of the evening oblation the end of the even of the daily sacrifice uh which was the ninth of av um was the beginning of the prophetic timer and let's see 1290 years from the end of the evening sacrifice would have been AD 705 which was when the dome of the rock was completed so if you wow. if you want you could call that one one version of an abomination of, of desolation if you i don't know um it, it's just one interpretation of it and i think it's kind of interesting I, I don't tend to you know you know place all of my eggs in one basket but i i also don't um turn my head away from really interesting coincidences. And I think that's one. So, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Oh, well, um, thank you for doing this a second time, Michael. I don't know if you have anything else you want to throw in there. No, I mean, just in general, um, you know, I think fundamentally as believers, it's easy to kind of, there's so many things, there's so many aspects to our faith, even though we all talk about our faith being in Christ and Christ should be everything. I think there's ways in which we can not rabbit trail away from Christ, but almost get confused by how many things there are to focus on in our faith. But I think to me, the fundamental of following Christ, one of the fundamentals is being a witness of the risen Christ, you know, the living Christ. And, um, you know, sometimes he can just become a character. I think when, when, when he's uh, in a sense obscured too much by the flesh or obscured too much by religion, he's almost just, He's still the carpenter. He's a he's the main character in a story, but it's so much more than that. You you know, fundamentally, we are you know living epistles all that, that that testify of the living Christ. You know, and um, I, I think that's one of the reasons why this time of year brings so much joy because it's it's not just a time of rebirth; it's really a time of our birth because the church began fifty days later as well. You know, it's it was the beginning of a new creation. You know, not just. Uh, triumphing over death of Christ as an individual, but also inaugurating a body of people that would have the Holy Spirit um, dwelling within them. And the implications are so astounding that, um, you know, our joy, just so much of our joy should come from that kind of fountain of revelation that Christ has triumphed over death and that he is alive in us. And 
it's so easy to get away from that with everything else that's going on or, or getting dragged into, and I'm not political either, but I know some Christians get dragged into politics or into, you know, too much ceremony, too much creed, but fundamentally, you know, we're, we're witnesses and living epistles of something that just rocked world history to its core that even those who had the oracles of God that had the prophecies did not see coming. And even the people that followed him for three and a half years didn't see coming. They had no clue. And then suddenly, you know, on a day of Pentecost, especially when they received the Holy spirit, suddenly it all clicks and something new and amazing and incredible. has been inaugurated and something absolutely otherworldly, you know, there's such a mystery to the truth of, of who we are as the body of Christ, such a wonderful mystery um, and it's so otherworldly, and I think we should be otherworldly, not in a way where we're pretentious and ethereal and pretending to be all mysterious just in a pretentious way, but in a way that, you know, that feeling you get when you look at a night sky and you see billions of stars and there's just this, you can even see it in a movie like, you know, you know, Return of the Jedi when they're on Endor or whatever, but whenever you see a night sky, there's just this sense of transcendent mystery that's so beautiful, and I feel like that that's what I mean by otherworldly. Like I feel like we should be people that contain a mystery that's so inexpressibly wonderful, but is also being revealed um, that it just transcends all the petty things that divide us and keep us apart and keep us from having that united testimony of Christ. Like this is, this is beyond the petty squabbles of religion and, you know, the petty, I know like squabbles over doctrine are not, you know, we should be contending for, for sound doctrine, but there is a unity in a mystery of the faith of, of, of who Jesus Christ is that's so transcendent. It's, it's even more beautiful and transcendent than looking at that night sky because it's the mystery of all, of all things bound up in Christ. It's so, so wonderful. And uh, I think whenever we catch a glimpse of that, it, to me, it just makes everything else drop away. It suddenly it's streams of living water coming out from within you. And like he promised the woman at the well and, all the things that kind of would distract or get in your peripheral and, and try and distract you from the reality of Christ just seem to melt away. Um, and, you know, the verse I often cite or the passages, you know, in second Corinthians three, where it talks about we, uh, beholding him as in a mirror were changed from glory to glory. Um, and I love that. There's so many times God has like reminded me that what matters is your folk fo- is your face turned towards Christ's face and that's how you're changed. You know, that's how, that's what that passage says. We're changed when we look at him as in a mirror. And, um, you know, that's the, you know, the, the, the resurrection is such a, you know, fountain of, of all of our hope and this whole mystery that we're walking in and living out and, and having revealed to us, the resurrection is such a, a wellspring of all of this, you know, um, even just, even when you just think about the resurrection and what it means, it's such an elation. Whenever I read the, you know, the crucifixion, I try those passages, the crucifixion resurrection, I try and be very serious. And when I'm reading them, you know, like concentrate, you know, don't kind of like skim over a lot of it. Cause it's so serious that Christ died. And I also try and read them together because, you know, when you really read the crucifixion seriously and concentrate, it's so mournful and so sorrowful and so sad even though it was a triumph um that you can you can almost you know partake in that devastation that his apostles had at the his disciples had at the time and then to go right on and read about the resurrection it's 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 just absolutely incredible and i think you know just being connected to the reality that he's not just he's risen but he's risen to be alive in all of us it's 
It's just that the absolute fundamental of our faith, you know, Christ in us, Christ uh, conforming us to his image, us being changed from glory to glory. And, and as a result, being a kind of otherworldly people, because we, we are earthly because we interface between heaven and earth, but we're fundamentally heavenly people that, that, um, that also dwell in the earth. And I think there should be something otherworldly about us because we're rejoicing in this mystery of Christ, this mystery of, you know, the living God of all things. It's, um, it's absolutely wonderful. Amen. Amen. Yeah. I would have nothing to add to that, but, uh, yeah, fantastic points. Well, Hey, do you want to close out with a prayer? Sure. I'll let you take this one, brother. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, thank you, Father, for allowing us to to come together to discuss the mystery and beauty and awe-inspiring event that was the both the crucifixion and resurrection of our Messiah, our Christ Jesus. We'd ask that you bless anyone that might listen to this and bless both Michael and I in our discussion and allow us to be edified, you know, hours later and days and weeks and, and months and you know, for months to come at the very thought of the resurrection of our Christ and that he would guide and, and bless and, and show love and, and mercy to everyone who would, would choose to, to talk to him and to ask and to seek to know more. And we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen, brother. Welcome to the IDC Podcast. This is Leko, and I am joined by my friends for the book club, where we're going to be talking about Edward Fazer's The Last Superstition, and we're covering the chapters, or not chapters, but rather sections, actuality and potentiality to the four causes. Um, But before we begin, uh, would one of you be keen to do the opening prayer? Sure. I thought we'd go thank you for... uh allowing us to meet together and discuss uh, more of these uh, philosophical thoughts from the times of the, the ancient Greeks and, and how they relate to, uh, to Christianity. Uh, thank you for Fieser's uh, work and just to guide us in our thoughts and discussions over the next uh, minutes. We'll pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right, who's here with us? Who's, who's uh, hanging out today? Yeah, so it's Brian in the north of, uh, in the north of England with a uh, with a little uh, scattering of snow, uh, which uh, makes things a bit exciting. And Darren and I am barely awake on the coast of British Columbia. I had a absolutely crazy week at work with lots of nighttime meetings. So it uh, it was one week, but it felt like three. <laughs> How was the new job? Is it is it treating you well? Yeah, so right now I'm transitioning into the properties that I'll be managing. So it's begun the process of meeting with the new property councils and, um, yeah, 
going to the properties, visiting them, transferring all the files over, finding out what should be archived and what's current and, you know, how all those things kind of run away from people. And I want to start with sort of a fresh start. So it's been good. It's, uh, yeah, it's been a lot of work and very busy, but I, it probably will be for another two or three weeks or so and then it should start slowing down once everything is transferred over and I start setting my own schedule and all of that stuff so yeah it's been very good though I've been enjoying it it's just been crazy oh very nice very nice and, and Brian I know I asked before but um, the Ukrainian family they're doing well on your end. yeah yeah they're doing fine thanks they're well settled and we're gonna gonna see them uh, next uh, next weekend next Friday St. Patrick's Day so having them and a few folks around to, to celebrate that auspicious occasion. Very good. Very good. So <clears throat> how much, and forgive me for this question, but you're growing up in Las Vegas, my, I feel that my perspective on everything is skewed. Um, <clears throat> how important is St. Patrick's Day outside of a party city? So Obviously, everyone is, is painting themselves green in Las Vegas and getting crazy. Um, what is St. Patrick's Day to you personally? What is it? Nothing, or is it still a lot of fun? It's nothing. Nothing particularly from a from a religious point of view. It's, a, it's an excuse for a bit of a party. Okay. Um, so but but that, that, pretty much the same as that, as you experienced, probably. Okay. To be honest, when I was growing up as a kid, it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't particularly celebrated, but it's become more of a thing as of okay okay <clears throat> so uh, yeah I'm clear I mean I wouldn't have even thought to ask is it a religious holiday <laughs> but, uh, because clearly it has its origins there somehow but uh, it does. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I think it might I, I suspect it's a um, a public holiday in the Republic of Ireland so I think because all the all the night it's like a national national Saints Day holiday so it will be a holiday there but so, yeah, it's not not here particularly just a, just an excuse for a party. Yeah, all right. I was gonna say it sounds like a great excuse to have a big party in the middle of Lent. Absolutely, absolutely correct. Because, because National Saints Days are exempted from uh, fasting days. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, correct, correct. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, um, yeah, we are talking about Ed Phasers the last superstition and uh, I, I've really enjoyed this portion of the book I feel that he is getting you know a lot more academic than obviously the first chapter where <clears throat> it was a lot of um, introduction and, and rationalization for, for what was to come but I think now that he's, he's gotten into the meat of, of the topic I think I'm, I'm quite enjoying it personally uh, so I'm keen to hear what, what everyone else has to say. Um, Brian, did you have a favorite part of the reading? Yeah, so I suppose my, uh, my favorite part was um, when he says, a cause cannot give to its effect what it does not have. Uh, so therefore, if, you're, if, if, something, if, you, if something causes something else to, to change or to, to affect the change, therefore by its very nature, because that thing that's caused it, it can't impart more than it has. And uh, if he talks about, he, he cites the example of uh, evolution, where he says, you know, genetically you pass on your genetic materials, and even if there's a mutation or something caused by environmental impacts, that's, uh, 
the, the, the mutation is caused by environmental impact. It's, a, it's, an, it's, a, it's an effect of that and the basic DNA that, uh, that the plants don't. So I, I quite like that. Yeah, really great point. Great point. Um, all right, uh, Darren, did you have a favorite part of the reading? Yeah, I actually really enjoyed these chapters or sections of the book as well. And I thought, wow, isn't it fantastic after reading five proofs that I actually somewhat understand what's going on here? <laughs> because I would not have at all if it wasn't for reading that book. Uh, when was it? A year ago. But um, yeah, so I, I really like this section and I'll just read it out. It's in Actuality and Potentiality. It says, it might be said by such philosophers that we can conceive of a possible world where rubber balls can bounce from here to the moon or where they move by themselves and follow people around menacingly or some such thing. But the potentialities Aristotle had in mind are the ones rooted in a thing's nature as it actually exists, not just any old possibility in an abstract sense. I thought that was really great because he's, I think he's critiquing sort of modern philosophy a little bit when he's making that statement saying that we have a misunderstanding of what Greeks were thinking when they talked about potentiality. And uh, Aristotle says, well, potentiality is a broad range of things, but it is ultimately grounded in the actual possibilities given the nature and form of a certain object. So I thought it was a really nice way to put it and um, very practical. Maybe that's maybe that's like my Northern European sort of Protestant roots coming in there. Like, yeah, that makes sense. That's practical. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't be able to put it to words, but I know that I've heard people, or rather give an example. I'm waiting for my uh, my tea to kick in here. Um, I, I wouldn't be able to give an example, but I, I've definitely heard uh, atheist philosophers straw man a lot of these things by, by giving extreme cases and not really respecting the boundaries that were sort of... Oh, there's my watch. Well, it derails the entire argument that people are making if you're going to throw these kind of possibility curveballs, let's say, yeah. at someone that they're expecting, you're expecting them to defend. I would say that it's sort of giving straw man arguments that, that don't really, uh, are, are maybe not designed to provide any merit to the conversation, but rather to just make the conversation absurd. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's that's. I mean, yeah, the, the idea behind a straw man definitely, and, and you see it all the time online in forums where people are debating things. They just the opposing side will straw man, and then when the other side tries to rein them in a little bit, they'll just say, "I'm done with this conversation." So, yeah, some some people just don't want to know. <laughs> um, yeah, good point. Good point. Yeah, I, I suppose the only thing that made me think of it was, I think you have to be a little bit. I'm almost surprised he didn't give an example because, you know, light can be either waves or particles. And, you know, the first time I came across this, I thought, what nonsense is this? How can something be? We almost behave in two different ways. And, yeah, very clearly is. I've seen it with my own, my own eyes with various experiments. So I think we just have to be uh, a little bit careful not to say just because it's the only thing we've experienced, it's the only potential there can be. So, uh, yeah, I agree, Darren. It's good to have a grounded reality. I think we just always have to be cautious that 
just because we've, that's the way we've experienced something to date, that's the only potential there can be. Um, I feel it's almost mm, <laughs> erring in the side that it, it can only be rooted in our reality. Yeah, I, I think you make a really good point. Like, he, he, to be fair, I don't think that he is putting those those really narrow boundaries on an argument as far as potentiality of objects. But yeah, it's the same thing as kind of the the black swan argument, where prior to going to the west coast of Australia, everyone knew swans to be white, and there was no other possibility or conception of one to be. But that's not to say that it's there's no potential for a swan to be a different color. It's just that's not what what, what we, we mean, know. What our experience has taught us exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I suppose it's always yeah. It's very important to think about those differences of say in a philosophical sense, what is potentiality, and in a observational personal sense, what is say a possibility or something that's within the realm of what I have experienced or can conceive of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a good point, right? And it made me think of that quote, um, the only barrier to truth is the belief that we already have it. Uh, so yeah, Brian, I, I agree with you. I think uh, you bring up some excellent points. Um, all right, uh, so Kirsten wrote in, she says hello and she hopes that we have a good session she wrote her favorite part is the distinction between actuality and potentiality actuality and potentiality um, i think yeah that's that's obviously uh, that's yeah i thought that was very interesting as well um if i had a favorite part personally i, I think the, the whole section on aristotle's four causes i think was really fascinating the idea that you can have truth without knowledge that um you know, just by merely observing something, and I think that I think that um, it's really interesting. I know we've we've covered this before, and I've said this so many times, but um, the idea that just by simple observation of the cosmos, you know, you can you can vaguely make out you know the reality there that there was a first cause, you know, that there, and that that we have a you know a form, and that form indicates. You know, some idea of who we are and where we came from, and uh, well, actually, the four uh, four causes. You know, the, the material cause, the, the chemical makeup of a thing. Like we we are made up of matter. Um, the formal cause. You know, the, the idea of how we're built would indicate what we can do and you know, what we're capable of. The efficient cause. I've got these in my notes. Obviously, um, um, what what motion brings us into existence and. You know, was our were our great great grandparents it, or did you know does that go back ad infinitum, or was there something that sort of was a, a foundation, and then a final cause, and you know, the final cause being not not just our own demise, and you know the <clears throat> the use that the world would have for our, our chemical makeup, but also um, what what potentiality we have you know, inside of us, our consciousness and all that stuff. So and I, I, I know I'm, I'm doing a terrible job of, of, of summarizing it because I don't fully grasp it myself, but I think it was really interesting. Uh, so yeah, really enjoyed it. And I also, yeah, enjoyed the idea of heliomorphism and uh, that being sort of a, you know, some people kind of living by that. I think that that's a really interesting, in interesting concept. So, uh, okay. 
Let's see. Brian, opinions changed. I don't know if his opinions changed or if it's just news. So the four, uh, the four um, causes that you've just uh, uh, talked about, Aleko, did, did we come across those in the five proofs? Because I, uh, I can't remember it being being put in that uh, in that format. So it was sort of seemed slightly. A lot of the concepts were there, but I hadn't described it. I hadn't. Uh, I didn't. I don't remember it being described as these four causes before. That's one thing I don't remember from, from Five Proofs. Darren, do you recall? I don't think that he talked about the causes yeah. in the Five Proofs. I don't have any recollection of that anyways. No, exactly. I, I don't know anything. So I just wonder if that was like an aberration or whether... Because I think he, you know, he bigs it up in this in this book saying it's very important and it's absolutely <laughs> sort of vital and it's, it's foundational. And I'm thinking, well, how come I didn't, he didn't bring it up? Because he covered a lot of ground in the Five Proofs. So how come it was missed out from there? Uh, was a, <laughs> a query I had. You know yeah, what? Although it probably uh, it could very well have been in there and just got lost in the mass higher folks of information that was thrown at us. There were a lot of new concepts in there. So, uh, but yeah, so I, I liked it and it was new, but I uh, I just suddenly thought, you know, <laughs> I, again, I certainly hadn't come across it anywhere else in my in my academic studies or reading, so it was new and uh, interesting. Um, and uh, but yeah, like you were saying, I left quite a lot to get my head around again, and to be able to differentiate exactly what the what the what the four four differences or the four different causes are. So it was good. You, you know, I thought. Was, oh, sorry, Derek, go on. It, I was going to say it's a very interesting way of understanding the world and our purpose and how we're shaped, because it. it it essentially applies universally, I would say, that these four causes, they're the framework of them, can be applied to anything we can yeah. think of. Yeah. 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 It reminds me, so in, in, uh, in the church I grew up in, we had, um, we had a catechism, so sort of a, I don't know, a, a summation of their beliefs. And the first, the first one is, you know, what is man's end? Man's end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So I sort of that reminded me very much of this sort of final cause. What what's your purpose here for? So um, there we go. yeah, yeah, very very interesting. Um, I you know I, I backtracking to to the idea of this being in in five proofs. I know that there's a distinction between this book and five proofs in that five proofs was made for sort of intermediate audiences and this book is made for beginner audiences but what i found funny about that is the language is the same for this book as it was for five proofs the only difference is he throws in little casual comments like hey have a jolt cola or a martini in this case i'm like wait, 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 wait. so the difference between the beginner book and the intermediate book is you have a little casual banter with the readers? Is that is that how you're you're doing this now? Like, um, I'm guessing someone that reads and teaches Aristotelian or say Greek philosophy and uh, apologetics day in and day out with a class of university students probably thinks that dumbing things down to a first or second year university level is really making things simple but then he forgot that for the rest of the world you have to dumb it down to like a sixth grade level first. <laughs> precisely 
Um, alright, Darren, did I ask you if you had any opinions changed? No, no, uh, you did not ask me yet, but I did come across part. So he's, I thought that Aristotle's critique of Plato's forms was really interesting. And I know that we had a discussion about forms. Was it last, last book club, right? I don't recall. Yeah, I, I think it was the last one. And um, he, it sounds like Aristotle started the the critique of these kind of infinite regress of forms and how when you treat a form as a universal that's instantiated in many things, but also existing independently as an object in its own right, as Plato does, it leads to these paradoxes. And one would be that, say as humans, you could say we participate or our interest is in the the form of man but if form of man is a thing that means that form participates in something else so say what uh what phaser phaser says is say a super form of man and then that oh, yeah, super form yeah. participates in something else and it's kind of this infinite uh regress and i thought it was a very interesting way of seeing it i don't think that I actually caught it when I was reading this section on Plato that he created the form as an object or a thing in itself rather than say a philosoph like a philosophical abstract way of understanding purpose which I think is the argument that Phaser is making as he kind of goes into the four causes is saying well you have Plato's forms, but ultimately they fit in the framework of the four causes. They're a way of understanding purposes of things, how things are formed, and so on. Not necessarily a thing in itself to be achieved. I see, yeah. I would have nothing to add to that, but yeah, yeah. good point. Kirsten says she has no opinions changed uh, with regard to myself. You know, Brian, I haven't asked. Has Hillary sent notes? I haven't even checked the, the email yet. I, I think she intended to. see in all caps burn this book ah that'll be hillary so forgive me hillary did write in uh, let me just read her favorite part of the reading uh, the four causes particularly the part where the author explained how we use them to assess an object in this case a rubber ball without stopping to think about them um, oh i should also point out gmail is telling me be careful with this message. It could be phishing. So, um, a suspicious person indeed. Okay, and then Hillary also Hillary also wrote uh, with regard to opinions changed. She wrote, "No, I don't like the writing style of the author. Either it is a serious academic book or it is not. The book tries to be serious and joking at the same time, and it doesn't work." 
she follows she follows up with Jolt. She, like 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 she, fo- she follows up with what is Jolt Cole? <laughs> All right. Uh, okay. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, I <laughs> that that to me was I just thought it was funny because you know. Is, is that what he means by beginner book? Just you have a little funny banter or something? But uh, um, anyways, let's see. Uh, I don't have any opinions changed personally, so maybe I'll go to questions or objections, Brian. Um, there was a part uh, or a reference to Paul Davis uh, talking about something potentially breaking the second law of thermodynamics. Um, which I I just didn't understand what he was trying to get at. Uh, I'll be honest, I read it a few times. So, um, but there we go. That was my only my only question. <laughs> sure. So I, something about. Uh, sorry, go on. Yeah. Yeah, something about order and disorder, and in a closed system, things will naturally sort of tend to disorder. Yeah. Unless some some energy, some some form, something from outside that. that can put in work and effort to make them into an order, but I, I just, I, I couldn't see the point he was trying to make. But maybe that's a minor query. I don't imagine Mr. F- well, Mr. Fraser will not be around to answer it. So there we go. <laughs> I, I vaguely recall it. I didn't make a note on it. I read this a couple of weeks ago. So yeah, I mean that's that's thermodynamic equilibrium constant where things spread out in a in a closed system. But um, yeah, I don't recall what he said to be honest with you. Right. Um, let's see. Questions or objections, Darren? Whenever I see the word thermodynamic, I just skip to the next paragraph. <laughs> maybe, maybe I will take your uh, your advice from my own Darren. <laughs> well, it's it, well thermodynamic equilibrium constant is um, it's basically why matter. It's, it's our the idea is that matter spreads out evenly naturally so for example it's, it's the reason why all the air in a room doesn't bunch up into one corner um, and it's all, all all matter trends toward that not not just in a closed system but in in the universe in general you know, to, toward disintegrating it kind of walks hand in hand with entropy you know things are kind of falling apart and we, we I think that's why you get a lot more chemists and uh, physics practitioners that uh, lean toward lean toward um, theism or deism than you do maybe perhaps the other realms of science because they know that you need an external cause. I don't know if that's the verbiage they would use, but they, they, some of those things need to be acted upon in order to stymie. Yeah, bring order into the chaos, essentially, because all things trend toward chaos, essentially. Um, and, yeah, so to say that, and this, this is a huge tangent, to say that um, you would get, j- just at the very beginning of the intelligent design argument, that you would get abiogenesis from chaos, It's that's a real big ask. It's a real big, you know. You, you, and I, I could go down a thousand different avenues there, but... And just that right there, the, the simple cell that you often see kind of displayed in like movies where they show an animation of just a cell, a self-replicating cell popping into existence. Just that leap right there is not what Richard Dawkins would call a gap. 
because uh, he often refers to that as the god of the gaps argument. We don't understand how that gap was made, therefore there must be a god. It's more of an unclosable chasm. Like, it's, it's, it, it's unfathomable, the, di the distance between life and non-life. Okay, um... Darren, did you, did you give us your question or objection? What is it? I... <laughs> I don't really have any questions or objections that I came through uh, in reading this, so... Alright. Um, yeah, Hillary's... Oh, let's see, Kirsten's was... Let's see. Question for the author to be explored in further chapters is why final causality underlies all potentiality and thus all materiality. I think... Um, the only reason I understand this is because I had I had to go to YouTube and have a professor further explicate the four causes and what he said and I thought this was really interesting is that Aristotle viewed for example an apple as a an immature apple tree because its final cause was the apple tree um, and therefore, I'm not sure if I'm answering this correctly, but, um, that, that would mean the final, am I answering this correctly? What do you guys think? The final, final cause for us would not be our humanity or our time here on earth, but something else, um, according to our belief system, right? In my opinion, according to reality. Um, so... Uh, perhaps that's that's the answer she's looking for, but I'm not not quite sure. Well, I think it raises so many questions because, say, for example, your analogy of an apple and an apple tree. So then you could, in turn, the next step of that would say, okay, well, you have this apple. This apple has grown into a mature apple tree. The the final cause of that apple tree is to produce new apples and those new apples will fall to the ground and will produce another apple tree so then it is sort of the I, I want to say this is very common argument in biologists uh, in atheist biology where they'll say well the purpose of every living thing is to reproduce so to procreate and continue their sort of genetic material into the future. And I, I don't know if it's very well explained, and hopefully Phaser will get to this, but what makes the purpose of humans different from the purpose of an apple or a turtle? So if an apple and a turtle, their objective is reproduction and continuing on their genes, then why is it for a human that it's like, well, no, it's not just that. It's actually, from a philosophical perspective, it's also our eternity of ourselves uh, as, say, in the form of the soul. Well, doesn't he make the distinction between humans and animals as us being rational animals and them being other? There's something something different. I don't recall what he says about them. So there, yeah. there's a philosophical difference, I guess, between us. Um, but yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't be privy enough to to explain any further than that. But yeah, it's interesting. I I, I would like to hear more. Yeah. All 
right. Uh, let's see. Questions or objections? Uh, Hillary was just what is what is Jolt Cola? I thought that was quite funny. Um, I don't know what it is either. It's I have no idea either. So I think it's uh, the generic soda that you can get at a supermarket in America if you don't want to pay the full price for Coca-Cola. Maybe I've seen it. I know I've seen it, but yeah. Um, that's that's probably a good thing. That's probably a good thing. It's probably the equivalent of like Sainsbury soda. Or exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, all right. Phaser doing it again. Regionally limiting himself and alienating his audience. <laughs> I think Hillary would be very happy if he had originally limited himself. One world life. Ugh, man. Um, yeah, I, I don't have any any questions or obj- I mean, I probably have a thousand questions, no major ones, but sure, I would like to know more. I'm curious you know, to know where he would he would go from here. So. I, I, so far, am enjoying the book. I, I didn't particularly like the first chapter, I think. And that's not to say I even disagreed with Phaser in the first chapter. I think he just could have approached it differently. But I think that, um, you know, the, these these last few sections I, I've quite enjoyed. So, I don't know if you guys had any final thoughts on the, the reading. I, I like this section the best of what we've read so far. I would agree with that. He just keeps making big promises for the future, so I hope he lives up to it. He seems to say, just wait through this bit and you'll get to the really good good stuff in the coming chapters. So <laughs> he's raising expectations, which I always think is a bit dangerous. <laughs> yeah, although I, I would have to say, uh, like, to sort of Aleko's point as well of having lots of little questions, yeah, I, I found the same thing in reading this, and then I thought back to the five proofs and how he would build each chapter up in a in a very uh sort of lengthy format and then and you're kind of wondering like where is this going and i've got all these questions and then as you're reading it they start to be answered 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 and then at the very end of the chapter he would give this summary this kind of uh sequential ordering summary of exactly the argument and then by the time you get to that summary you're like oh Okay, I, I think I have some understanding of what's going on here, and I'm not completely lost anymore. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I, I really, oh sorry, I, re- I really enjoyed Five Proofs, but the thing that always stood out to me, uh, and sometimes it just plays in my head at random, was at the beginning of every chapter, he would list three things. He'd be like, okay, you've got wheelbarrows, a can of soda, and a, uh, you know, and a baby, and uh, the wheelbarrows, blah blah blah. And he would basically always list like three things to try to make his point at the very beginning. You know, like you've got an automobile, you've got you know a, a jar of milk, and you've got blah blah blah. And I always thought that was quite funny because the next chapter I'd always be anticipating what three things is he going to be talking about in this in this early part, and how does this relate to philosophy? Um, it's like game of clue. Yeah, <laughs> precisely, precisely. Um, all right, so. Uh, for chapter three, uh, I'm just looking at the table of contents, but digitally it doesn't tell me how much reading that actually is. We've got 39 pages. That's not too bad. 
Do you have the actual book? Okay, I should have gotten the actual tangible book. Um, okay, so getting medieval, that would include what Aquinas didn't say, the existence of God, the unmoved mover, the first cause, and the supreme intelligence. Sweet. Sounds good. All right. Uh, Darren, would you be keen to do the closing prayer? Sure. Father in heaven, we thank you for this conversation. Uh, we pray that you'd be with each of us through the remainder of our day be with Hillary and uh, keep her safe on the roads as she comes back from her swim event. And we pray that our conversation would be edifying to both us and to the audience that listens to us. In Jesus' name, amen.